Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students. Hey there, Peter. Hey, Scott. Good seeing you again. I'm also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean at Reformed Theological Seminary. Hey there, Tommy. Hey, good to be with you. And I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, Lecturer in New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary and Senior Pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the Northern Virginia area. Hey, Paul. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. And of course, we have our now... I can't think of the right way to say this. I'm just going to say officially hired professor of systematic theology, Gray Sutanto. This is his first honest day on the RTS faculty. Welcome, Gray. So glad to be here. Glad to be official. We're thrilled to have you. We also have a special guest today, the Carl M. McMurray, professor of theology and philosophy at RTS, Dr. James Anderson. Hey, James. Hey, good morning, Scott. It's great to have you. We, we're particularly thrilled to have you because your influence reaches across so many RTS campuses. You're, you're, you're coming to us from RTS Charlotte, where you're full-time faculty, but you're also academic dean at the global campus, which is impressive, impressive sounding, and you're academic dean at the New York campus as well. Um, so we're thrilled to have you here to chat about philosophy and the importance of philosophy, particularly analytic philosophy and how it's been applied in theological inquiry. This question is uh, particularly prescient these days as we're watching universities like the uh, Liberty University collapse its undergraduate philosophy program. They'd already closed down their master's program in 2015, but just announced a few weeks ago that they're going to close down their undergraduate program as well. And it raises this question, what is the value, what's, what's the contribution that philosophy has to, I think we could just speak broadly, to the human endeavor, but more particularly uh, to our theological endeavor, theological education, and thinking about the world in a Christian way. James Anderson has written extensively on philosophy and apologetics, particularly on analytic philosophy, which will be the main focus of our discussion today. He's also written broadly on um, you know, an apologetic argument for Christianity. He's written about discerning your own worldview uh, and more of a popular level. And those books have been very widely received and welcomed. And so I'm thrilled to jump into this conversation with you. So to do that, James, let's start with this question. What is analytic philosophy and why is it important? Okay, so it's just starting with a small question then. <laughs> yeah, just a little one. Just a little yeah, one. yeah, it's kind of like asking, uh, define postmodernism. Okay, well, <laughs> how, how long have you got? Well, a analytic philosophy is, um, you, could, you could define it in historical terms or you could define it in more conceptual terms. In, in historical terms, Analytic philosophy is a, is a movement in the broader world of Western philosophy that really has its roots in um, early 20th century um, philosophy of language and focusing on clarifying the claims that we make in philosophy. So 
figures like Bertrand Russell, uh, G.E. Moore, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Uh, there was a lot of focus on, on analyzing the claims that are made in philosophy. And before, before asking, is this claim true? Asking, what does it actually mean? What, what do you mean when you say such and such? And um, so, so the, the historical roots of analytic, analytic philosophy really lie in this uh, early movement in uh, philosophy of, of language. And, and that, that developed over the course of the 20th century. It went through different manifestations in the, the logical positivist movement and then the ordinary language movement and so forth. But now it's really broadened out um, to, to include really every, every discipline of philosophy. If you think about the three divisions of metaphysics, epistemology and ethics, analytic philosophy um, encompasses uh, all three of those. But really what's distinctive about analytic philosophy over against what is often called continental philosophy is uh, an emphasis on clarity of expression, uh, precision in expression, uh, logical analysis, so breaking down statements into their logical components and asking what are the logical implications, uh, asking questions about the, the coherence um, and the explanatory power of various theories that are put forward to explain certain things. So, so now analytic, analytic philosophy is, is a fairly broad movement, but as I say, it's really characterized by Partly, um, it's, it's ambitions to obtain clarity on philosophical questions and to seek um, satisfying explanations of phenomenon, and also the style in which it's done, which is a very uh, logical, systematic approach to philosophy that tries to avoid figurative language, metaphorical language, whereas in continental philosophy, there's more of a sort of literary flair to it, uh, um, uh, using using novels, poetry, literary forms to communicate truth. In, in analytic philosophy, there's more of a, we might call it a prejudice towards uh, literal logical statements. So that in general terms is how I'd characterize analytic philosophy. James, um, I'd love to get to a discussion of reform analytic theology in particular, but perhaps before we get to that, uh, what are some objections you may have heard about with regard to the project of uh, Christian theology in conjunction with analytic philosophy, or even the project of what in recent days have become known as analytic theology? Uh, lots of folks perhaps might be worried that uh, wedding Christian theology with analytic philosophy would produce revisionist doctrines of the Christian faith, eccentric accounts maybe of, of this doctrine or that doctrine. Some worry that analytic theology is ahistorical, uh, what objections do you think are most pertinent here and how would you respond to these objections against uh, analytic theology? Sure. Well, maybe maybe we should just back up a second and, and define analytic theology. I just laid out a characterization of analytic philosophy and we should probably build the, build the bridge from from that term to, to the main focus of our discussion, analytic theology. So analytic theology is really just uh, theology done with the, with the approach, with the tools, with the vocabulary, with the style of analytic philosophy. It's, it's analytic philosophy applied to theological topics. In fact, let me, let me give you um, 
what is pretty much a definition of analytic theology. This comes from uh, William Abraham, and uh, he, this is a quote from the, the volume, the edited volume, Analytic Theology, that came out in 2009, um, various articles on, on the topic of analytic theology. But William Abraham defines uh, analytic theology as systematic theology attuned to the deployment of the skills, resources, and virtues of analytic philosophy. That's, that's a pretty good, succinct definition of what analytic theology is. Now, as you say, there's, there's been a lot of um, discussion, uh, maybe even controversy, about the legitimacy and the utility of analytic theology, and you, uh, you listed off some, some objections right there. One, one of the objections is that it's, it's ahistorical, that uh, often analytic theologians uh, approach these topics in theology in a very abstract um, way without without reference to the hi historical context in which the, the doctrines in, in question were formulated without attention to historical interpretation of maybe Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, whoever it is. And uh, I think there's actually something to that criticism in that uh, often analytic theologians have approached things in a, in a rather sort of abstract and idealized uh, historical way. But there's nothing in analytic theology per se that requires that. Um, if it is a failing, it's a failing of analytic theologians rather than analytic theology as a, as a discipline, because there's, there's no reason why you can't engage in a historical interpretation of a doctrine or put it in its historical context. And once you've done that in a responsible historical way, to then apply the, the tools, the analytical tools of analytic philosophy to better understand this doctrine, to, to bring out its logical coherence, to defend it against objections. So, uh, as long as you don't see analytic theology as being the only way to do theology, but one, one mode of theological discourse or one particular way of thinking about theological topics, then you can see it in partnership with other disciplines, whether those be historical theology, biblical theology, exegetical theology. Um, and I think that's the, that's the healthy way to see it. Uh, what were some of the other objections that you mentioned there, Gray? Well, perhaps that some people might argue that analytic theology, for example, might be um, impatient with mystery. Perhaps this uh, desire to analyze concepts to get clear about what it is that we need to be able to conceive in our minds uh, what we're referring to with our language, right? Does analytic theology, therefore, preclude a patience with mystery? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. As I, as I said earlier, analytic philosophy certainly places a premium on, on precision, on systematic articulation of truth claims, of clarity of expression, of trying to avoid metaphorical and, uh, and uh, figurative language. And, and those ambitions obviously carry over into analytic theology. I think you can say that precision and clarity and uh, logical coherence are, are worth having and worth pursuing without saying that they are the ultimate goal and that, and that if we haven't accomplished maximal precision or maximal clarity or maximal understanding, then we failed. Um, I think everyone who engages in systematic theology wants to 
better understand doctrines, state them in, in clear and systematic ways. Um, but that, that in itself doesn't rule out recognizing the limitations of human reason, the accommodation uh, of divine revelation to, to human cognitive capacities. You know, Calvin talks about the accommodation of scripture, God accommodating his revelation to us, to uses this metaphor of, of lisping, uh, like like a, a parent does to a child to 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 condescend to to speak to them at their level, and you can you can recognize all that and recognize that there's still a place for mystery, even even paradox in theology, while still wanting to press press ahead in in, in seeking precision and clarity to the extent that we are able to do so. So so there's sort of balance between, yes, we want to try and improve understanding, at the same time recognizing that there are going to be limits to our understanding. And when we're dealing with with the great things of God, then there are going to be inherent limits. We're going to bump up against uh, the limits of reason, the limits of understanding. There is going to be a realm of mystery beyond which we cannot penetrate. Yeah, and of course, you wrote one of the best books on paradox in Christian theology from an analytic theological standpoint. I remember actually picking that up for the first time at Biola and thinking to myself, finally, here is an analytic theologian who really wants to preserve many and much of the Reformed faith in this particular book. So I was really happy to pick that up. Um, You know, this is perhaps an autobiographical question because I love to explore the idea of a Reformed analytic theology, right? Uh, when I was an undergrad studying philosophy in my major, I felt incredibly lonely because I felt like, well, here I am thinking about analytic philosophy, but everyone seems to be Molinistic. Everyone seems to uh, be suspicious of Calvinism and Reformed theology because of our emphasis on compatibilism. Um, that, that idea that the sovereignty of God is compatible with human freedom and human responsibility. And after going to a, a double major and then doing my, my second degree as well with, with uh, on theology and biblical studies, I found that a lot of my professors there were Calvinistic. And so I became quite suspicious of analytic philosophy and, and the idea of doing a reformed analytic philosophy or a reformed analytic theology seemed to be really difficult in my own mind for a while there. Uh, but now, of course, uh, things seem to be really, really different. There is a lot of reformed theologians who are working in analytic theology. Of course, you're one of them. And I could think of uh, several others in my own mind. There was a great book on Calvinism and the problem of evil, uh, edited by David Alexander and Daniel M. Johnson. You have a chapter in there uh, called Calvinism and the first sin dealing with Calvinism and, and why it is that God and how it is we can understand God ordaining the fall, giving permission to the fall. And so there's a lot of different things now starting to therefore change my mind, perhaps in 2015, 2016, that there is a possibility for reformed analytic theology. We might mention Oliver Crisp, uh, who's, of course, a reformed theologian working in this mold, um, and even historical theologians like Timothy Paul, who's working on conciliar Christology, really trying to preserve the mysteries of Chalcedon, even while they're doing analytic theology. So... I'd love to just hear your thoughts on how do we therefore be reformed theologians and at the same time do analytic theology? I think certainly we want to recognize that reformed analytic theology is not, not a contradiction in terms. There's not, there's nothing uh, incoherent about the idea of reformed analytic theology. In fact, 
to put a more positive spin on it, if, if analytic theology just is as I defined it earlier, riffing off uh, William Abraham's definition, that it's basically systematic theology done in, in the mode of analytic philosophy or bringing the tools of analytic philosophy to bear. Well, if, if reformed theologians are enthusiastic about systematic theology, which of course we are, uh, and if we would want to say that the best systematic theology is a reformed systematic theology, then the best analytic theology is going to be a reformed analytic theology. Now, I know that's going to get people's backs up who, who don't share our reformed convictions, but for those of us who, who are convinced that reformed theology is, is simply an articulation of, of, of biblical theology, then, then analytic theology ought to be a reformed analytic theology. And I think that the reformed tradition as a whole gives us a, a motivation to pursue analytic theology while recognizing its limitations, uh, some of the limitations that, that I've just articulated. But although, although analytic theology in the way that we've defined it is a relatively recent movement, because analytic philosophy is a recent movement, the, the underlying motivations to seek to understand doctrines, to articulate them precisely, to articulate them clearly, to articulate Christian doctrines in a systematic way that brings out their internal coherence and the way that they make sense of the world at large. These go back far, far earlier in history and arguably the first and second generation of Reformed theologians were doing a kind of analytic theology, uh, in a sense. So you, you, for example, you read, you read Turretin's Institutes. That's highly systematic, analytical, reformed theology. Now, he's doing it with the vocabulary, the conceptual schemes that were, were current in his day, and, and of course, that's to be expected. But in a sense, contemporary reformed analytic theology is just going to be doing the same thing but with some more up-to-date tools, some more up-to-date uh, conceptual distinctions, vocabulary, logical systems, and so forth. So in a sense, it's nothing new. The Reformed, Reformed theologians have, have been doing this sort of thing and placing a premium on the rational, logical articulation of the Christian faith for a long time. I was uh, I'm interested to hear you talk a little bit more, James, about the nature of paradox there. One of the things that was really helpful for me at... Uh, you know, kind of as a young theologian, uh, was Van Til's co concept of, of limiting concepts. I think he borrows that from, from Kant, this idea that I can, I can hold two positions that's, that seem contradictory and yet at the same time realize that in the mind of God, these, co these cohere. That, that was helpful for me, like as a biblical exegete, and it, even now in my own work in hermeneutics, that that idea that that I can hold these two positions as somebody who is inherently limited as opposed to God who is infinite in every respect. I'm curious to hear you think a little bit more about that. What was your mm. the paradox book about? What um, yeah yeah. Well, let me let me give you a little bit of the background to to that book, which was actually um, a reworking of my doctoral thesis at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, I, I was looking at, at different topics that I could, I could focus on in my doctoral research, and I, I settled on the topic of theological paradox because it was an element of Van Til's writings 
that was highly provocative and seemed to me fundamentally right, even though I hadn't explored it in depth, but no one had really spelled it out in a, in a sort of robust um, analytical fashion. Um, there had been work on, on various aspects of Van Til's presuppositionalism, transcendental argument and so forth. But this idea that he lays out, and he doesn't do it in a very systematic way, but it crops up all the time in his writings, where he's talking about various paradoxes in the Christian faith. He doesn't always use the language of paradox, but that's clearly what he's talking about. He, he actually uses the, the language of apparent contradiction, that there are apparent contradictions, um, the elements of the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the incarnation, divine sovereignty and human freedom, uh, one of his favorite ones, in fact, is this, what he calls the full bucket paradox, that on the one hand, God is all glorious, so you cannot add to his glory, and yet at the same time, we are called to glorify God, to do things that bring glory to him, and that our, our actions in history really matter. They really count for something, even though, to use this metaphor, of the full bucket. God, God's bucket of glory is absolutely full and it cannot be filled anymore, but nonetheless it really matters what we do in history and, and so Van Til thinks that this is a kind of a paradox as well. And you're right, he borrows this language from Kant about limiting concepts where the basic idea is fairly simple, that you have two, two ideas or two, two doctrines or two, two elements of a doctrine that are in intention, both need to be affirmed. And in order to maintain a biblical theology, that we have to navigate the territory within those, those concepts or those claims. So, so they place certain parameters on the truth, but exactly how you resolve those two limiting concepts themselves is, is very difficult and perhaps impossible for us given our cognitive limitations, given the limits of human reason. And so we have to hold them intentional. On the one hand, we have to affirm both sides of the paradox and not deny either of them, because if we do, we actually end up in heterodoxy. We end up denying a sound biblical theology and yet recognizing that we cannot articulate the space within those claims in a way that is fully rationally satisfactory to us and, and and there are there is a residue of paradox to be found in the doctrine of the trinity incarnation divine sovereignty um and there are there are other claims as well um and you're right this is important not just in in systematics but in in biblical theology and exegesis for just it's almost as though we've got guardrails uh theological guardrails that keep us on the right track um uh, and there can be an element of frustration sometimes that we, we cannot resolve these things absolutely to our rational satisfaction. But what I argued in the, in the doctoral thesis, to circle back to that, is that while there are elements of paradox in Christian theology, it's not irrational to believe them. There's nothing irrational with, in saying that there are limits to human reason and that there are certain aspects of God that cannot be consistently articulated with, with our level of understanding. There's nothing irrational about re recognizing the limits of reason. And in fact, we have, within the context of a Christian epistemology, we have good grounds for affirming these doctrines, even though there are elements of paradox in them. So I was basically ask, asking and answering two questions in my thesis. First, are there 
paradoxes in Christian doctrines? And I answered, yes, there are. Um, I focused on the Trinity and the Incarnation. And then secondly, uh, is it still rational to believe these doctrines, even if they are paradoxical? paradoxical. And again, I, I answered yes and developed a, a Christian epistemology within which one can rationally affirm paradoxical theological claims. Talking about merely apparent contradictions now, um, I'm really looking forward to an upcoming publication of yours, a chapter in the TNC Clark Handbook to Analytic Theology that we're both contributors of, edited by J.T. Turner at Anderson University and James Arcady at TEDS. Uh, really excited about this chapter. Uh, the title is Election, Grace, and Justice, Analyzing an Apparetic Triad. Now, I'm guessing it has something to do with the seemingly paradoxical conjunction of election, grace, and justice, right? So um, this is, I'm guessing as well, an instantiation of reformed analytic theology. Can you give us a little glimpse of what the argument is in this particular chapter in this handbook? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'd be glad to do that. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it is uh, an, an example of uh, reformed analytic theology. Um, I was contacted by um, the editors of this volume a number of years ago. They were putting together the TT and uh, TNT Clark um, companion to analytic theology. I think I think I've got the title right there. And they they basically wanted to collect together essays on on almost every topic. Uh, uh, in Christian theology um, and ask people to write on it from the perspective of, of analytic theology. And they asked me to write the doctrine of election. And I was of course delighted that they'd asked a Calvinist, a card carrying Calvinist to, to write the doctrine, to write the chapter on the doctrine of election. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna grab this one with, with both hands and I'm gonna make a defense, um, basically a defense of well, I call it an Augustinian view of election, although it's the one that we would affirm in, in, as reformed uh, Christians that um, election is unconditional, that it's a free sovereign grace of God. But the way I, the way I set it up in the, in the article is to lay out actually not, an, not a triad, but a tetrad, um, four claims, four claims that I argue Christians want to affirm, at least those who take the biblical text seriously, there are four claims that Christians uh, will want to affirm. And uh, on the face of it, there's a tension within these four claims. So let me, let me just tell you what these four claims are. Uh, the first claim is that uh, God chooses that some individuals will be saved. So that's just a basic doctrine of election. Whether you're a Calvinist, an Arminian, a Molinist, you have to recognize that scripture talks about election. It, God, it talks about God choosing people for salvation. So the first claim is that God chooses some, uh, that some individuals will be saved. The second claim is that salvation is by divine grace alone. Again, anyone who's reformed is certainly going to affirm that, but really anyone who's Protestant uh, is going to affirm that salvation has to be by divine grace alone. So that's the second claim. The third claim is about the attribute of God's justice, that God is essentially just. Um, again, no Christian is going to want to deny that God is essentially just, that God in his very nature is just and righteous. So that's the third claim. And then the fourth claim 
is the claim that some individuals will not be saved. In other words, it's a, it's a doctrine of hell, a doctrine of damnation. Uh, it's a, a denial of universalism. Uh, not everyone will be saved in the end. There are some people who will not be saved. And then the question is, how do you resolve these four claims? Because you've got the claim that God chooses some for salvation, that salvation is entirely of divine grace. God is absolutely or essentially just, and yet some people are not saved. And on the face of it, it seems that there's a tension there. For example, if, if, uh, if God chooses and God chooses some for salvation, it's all of grace, then it seems to suggest that it's entirely up to God who is saved, that there's no component of human cooperation with God, that we, we're not contributing something to our salvation through some free act of the will or libertarian free will. But if that's the case, uh, and if God is absolutely just, then why would he choose some for salvation and not, not others? Why would some be saved and not others? Doesn't, doesn't the conjunction of God's sovereignty in election and his justice imply that he would choose everyone for salvation, that everyone would be saved. Uh, the universalistic um, resolution of that, um, of those four claims. So having set things up with these four claims, I then run through four different stances on it. One is the um, Augustinian view or the, the Calvinistic view that uh, God unconditionally elects to salvation. Uh, another is the Molinist view, and uh, I'm sure many of uh, our listeners here will be familiar with, with Molinism as a, um, an approach to divine providence that tries to reconcile divine providence with libertarian free will, and you end up with a, a conditional view of election on that view. Occamism, uh, which is a view uh, of, of divine foreknowledge that was put forward by William of Ockham and has become quite popular among Christian philosophers today. And then fourthly, universalism. Universalism would actually deny the last claim that there are some who are not saved. And I say there, that each of these four views tries to resolve that tetrad in a different way by either rejecting one of the claims or qualifying one of the claims. And in the last part of the article, I, I basically make a defense of the Augustinian solution. And I say that on the face of it, the problem for the Augustinian is the problem of divine justice. How is it that if God could, uh, elects unconditionally, how can he justly elect some to salvation and not others? Isn't that inherently unjust or unfair? And what I do is I run through some different uh, understandings of justice. What does it mean for God to be just? And I say that on, on none of these interpretations does God actually turn out to be unjust, even if he uh, sovereignly, unilaterally, unconditionally elects some to salvation and not others, that isn't a violation of divine justice in any of the respects that I, I identify in the, in the article. So it's not, um, uh, it's not a long article. Uh, obviously, in a book that has some 30 chapters or so, there's only so many words that can be allocated to each topic. But I think it's useful in, in uh, illustrating the project of analytic theology and also showing that it's not inimical, inimical to reform theology, and actually a reform theologian can do analytic theology in defense of reform distinctives. That was a long answer to your question, but <laughs> I hope it was helpful. Amen, amen, it was. James, thanks so much. Uh, James, thanks so much for just being with us today. Uh, I've read a lot of your uh, stuff, uh, including your articles, 
because I find them uh, so accessible. And uh, being a pastor, I, I think a lot about what I can give uh, my members that would be helpful. And so I was wondering if you could share just a little bit about your background in terms of how you came to where you are today and even like your thought process when you communicate fairly difficult, sophisticated ideas in ways that are not only intelligible, but meaningful, impactful. And so I was wondering if you could share that a little bit with our listeners. Sure, yeah, I'll try to do that. So so my background, well, um, spiritually, my background is that I was, I was raised in a, in a Christian home by Christian parents, um, strong evangelical tradition on my mother's side that placed great emphasis on scripture as the word of God, salvation um, through, through Christ alone. Um, so I was, I was raised in the context of, of a, a more generic evangelical Christianity. And it really wasn't until my teenage years that I embraced that at a personal level, despite intellectually affirming the doctrines of the faith. It wasn't until I was personally challenged in, in, in circumstances at a, actually at a summer camp for teenagers that, that I, I committed myself fully to following Christ um, and uh, didn't look really look back after that time. But uh, it was a couple of years after that, I went to university, to uh, the University of Edinburgh, and studied engineering. My undergraduate degree was in electronic engineering with a minor in, in computer science. And I was, a, I was a computer geek, you know, when I was growing up. My, my dad was an electronic engineer, and he worked for Philips, the electronics company in telecommunications, and he, my, the, the first computer that I ever used was one that my dad built. Uh, you can imagine I got a bit of a, a ribbing from my friends because they all had, you know, a, a, a Spectrum uh, 128 or a Commodore 64. And the joke was that my dad had built a computer out of a washing machine. And this was my computer. But, you know, it was, uh, it, it, I cut my teeth on this computer and I, I loved coding. I loved writing, not just playing games, but writing games. And when, it, when time came for me to go to university, I didn't really know what to do, uh, except to know I was, I was good at math, I was good at physics, my dad was an engineer, hey, I'll be an engineer. So I, I went to Edinburgh and, uh, and did an engineering degree. And then at the end of that was hired by the engineering school to do research in computer interfaces, in the usability of computer interfaces. And I, I worked in the engineering school for some 13 years doing doing postdoctoral research, and that involved a lot of computer coding. So I was clearly wired for this kind of systematic analytical work, although in this case for engineering, for, com for computing. But it was during my time there that I got very interested in Christian apologetics because I was in an intensely intellectual academic environment, and there was not a single fellow believer in the department in which I was working. There was maybe a dozen people working in the department. All of them were unbelievers of different stripes. Some of them quite antagonistic to the faith, some quite critical, critical. so I would get into discussions. And I really had to you know, get my apologetical ducks in a row so that I could engage at an intellectual level with these, with these peers of mine. So I got very interested in apologetics. I quickly realized if you're gonna do apologetics well, you need to know your theology. You need to know exactly what it is you're defending. You need to get your theology worked out. And also philosophy was going to be very helpful as well, because philosophy is 
really the art of, um, of thinking clearly, uh, arguing well, critical thinking. And so I started reading a lot in theology and philosophy and um, got, got bitten by the bug of, of uh, Christian philosophy and apologetics and did a, a master's degree by distance education. And by the time I completed that, I was doing this part-time while I was still working in the engineering school, I completed this master's degree. But then I felt the Lord was calling me to teach in this area, to teach in Christian philosophy and apologetics. And so I went to the divinity school at the University of Edinburgh, working as I was in the engineering school, I went to the divinity school and said, can I, can I apply to do a PhD here? So for about three years, I was both working in the engineering school and studying in the divinity school, doing a PhD in, in, well, formerly it was systematic theology, although it was really philosophical theology. And that, that led to the thesis on paradox that I, I just talked about. But at the same time, of course, I was, I was at, at a local church. I was involved in this church. Um, I served as a, a youth group leader for many years. I served on the, um, I served as an elder, and then for a period I was on the pastoral team as an assistant pastor. So I was in a number of worlds at once. I was in the engineering world, I was in the academic theology world, and I was in the local church ministry world, working with teenagers, with young people, um, discipleship, evangelism, and trying to bring all these things together in a way that would play to the particular gifts that the Lord had given me, but also serve effectively in the local church. And so I think what the Lord has equipped me to do is to be able to take the top shelf material and to communicate it to a lay Christian in a way that's going to seem relevant and helpful to the sort of intellectual and practical questions that they are, they are wrestling with. Certainly a lot of what I do is top shelf material. I'm, you know, I'm writing at a high level uh, in, in peer reviewed journals, but I have a real heart for taking the best theology, the best apologetics and repackaging it in a way that is digestible and understandable to <laughs> ordinary Christians. And I mean that in, in the best sense, uh, normal Christians. I don't see myself as, you know, Academics are not normal people. <laughs> they speak in normal ways uh, for, for lay Christians. But to be able to communicate that in a way that builds up the local body of believers, I think is a hugely important thing. And I see that really as being my life calling. James, in 2014, you wrote the book, What's Your Worldview, in which you had the brilliant insight of writing an apologetics book in choose your own adventure format, which... <sighs> I thought was incredibly brilliant as both a marketing scheme and a way of actually reaching out to people in a unique manner. I thought that was a great idea. And that's a great example too, where you ask questions and you turn pages based on your answers to the questions. You go to particular sections of the book. I thought that was a brilliant way of engaging the question in this really kind of interactive way. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I, I, will I give you a little bit of the backstory to that book? Would you be interested? Yeah. Please. yeah. So I was, it, it, it had its genesis in a class I was teaching here at RTS Charlotte, uh, Applied Apologetics. And in my Applied Apologetics, what I do is I, I cover some sort of methodology of apologetics and some strategies at the beginning. But then I go through a series of non-Christian worldviews, uh, naturalism, 
um, postmodernism or anti-realism, New Age spirituality, Islam, some you know major non-Christian worldviews, and um, and do a sort of presuppositional critique of each one. But being very analytical myself and having a background in computing, I thought to myself, there must be some logical way of breaking down the field of worldviews. Uh, you know, in, in computing, we have these things called flowcharts, and that not just computer scientists use these, but they're, they're widely used. But a flowchart is basically a, a way of articulating a series of decisions. So you ask a question and the answer is either yes or no. And so you branch off there and then there are other decisions that get made beneath that. And I thought to myself, well, there must be a way of looking at the entire field of non-Christian worldviews and turning it into something like a decision tree where there are fundamental questions that you ask about uh, the nature of truth, the nature of goodness, the existence of God, the attributes of God, the identity of Christ. If we can arrange these questions in the right way, then we can pretty much cover the entire field of worldviews, including the Christian worldview, uh, to help people understand what their worldview is, but also to understand the, fundament the fundamental questions that determine worldviews and divide, divide the field. So I was working this through in my head, computer guy thinking, how can I turn this into a decision tree? And also I had been brought up um, around about the time when those choose your own adventure books were really popular. It's interesting, you, 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 you mentioned choose your own adventure and there are people who are, immediately know what you're talking about. They, rec they remember that from their childhood, but now they're not as popular as they were and people aren't so familiar with them. But there's a, there's a certain generation that grew up with those uh, choose your own adventure books where you, 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 you just determine your own fate. You work your way through an interactive story by, by making decisions along the way. And I thought, well, maybe there's a way of doing a book on worldviews that, that uses the same scheme. Well, while I was uh, tossing all this around in my head, I, I was teaching this class on applied apologetics. And at the end of one class, um, a student came up to me and uh, she said, wouldn't it be great if you could write a book that did this? And basically what she described to me was the exact book idea that I'd been tossing around. And she had thought, well, I, I don't know what her background was as well, but she, she'd been having the same thoughts uh, uh, about the possibility of having an interactive book like this. And I was almost taken, I was taken aback when she described it to me. And I thought, well, this is, if this isn't a divine providential nudge, then I, I don't know what is. So I thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to put my hand to it. And I, I, I worked up a, a draft and put it to the crossway, the publishers, they liked it. And, and the rest is history, as they say. That's excellent. I loved it. And I've recommended it widely. Thanks for it. It's a service. James, I know a couple of our, uh, our tech folks, our computer folks, just will be dying to know what your first programming language was. My first programming language, well, I'm, I think before I ever went to university, I was writing in C. Yeah. Um, but that was even before C++ had really taken off. But the two, when, when I did my introductory computing languages, there were two languages that were taught. One was Pascal. They were still using Pascal to teach functional languaging, language. And then there was, um, there was another language. And do you know what? I can't even remember the name of it, but it was a language 
that the faculty at Edinburgh University had invented. And because they'd invented it, they, they thought, well, we're going to have to, we, we need to teach this to our students. And I think Edinburgh was the only place in the world that actually taught this language because it was, it was an Edinburgh University invented language. I can't, I, I wish I could remember the name of it. Um, but it was, it was heavy on recursion and, uh, you know, functions calling functions iteratively in order to to produce certain results, um, and it was it was useful for understanding concepts, abstract concepts. But as a practical language for writing stuff, no, no, no one uses it as far as I know, uh, except for really, really narrowly defined um, uh, fields of research. Uh, it, it seemed that a lot of the things that you mentioned can see a a theological. Um, resolution to a certain extent in the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's something that, um, you, you know, reformed Calvinism or just Calvinism in general, I guess, uh, to a certain extent has been historically criticized being for not being adequately Christocentric. That's sort of the claim Lutherans have always made that, uh, that uh, reformed theology tends to be so theologically centered that they are not adequately Christologically centered. And even, um, someone like uh, Sinclair Ferguson on his recent work on the Marrow uh, controversy, uh, you know, that wasn't necessarily, you know, sort of popular theology. His work on that was, um, you know, made a similar type of a uh, claim and was trying to resolve it to a certain extent to say that Reformed theology does have to be uh, Christocentric. I was wondering if you could comment, James, briefly on the, uh, the kind of Christocentric uh, place uh, and the role of, of being Christocentric in, in analytical theology uh, mm. and, and how th does that work there? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. There's a lot of different angles we could come at there. Maybe the first thing I would say is I, I, don't, I don't accept the charge that Reformed theology hasn't been sufficiently Christological. You know, th there's a difference between being um, adequately Christological and Christocentric. Um, I'm of the view that there, there is no, strictly speaking, there is no central doctrine of the Christian faith. I, I think it's a theological error to take one of the doctrines of the Christian faith and make that the, the center around which everything revolves. And so I'm, I'm a little wary of claims that we need to be Christocentric. Um, maybe in, in some respects we do, you know, if we're talking about salvation, salvation by grace, well, of course, it is Christ and Christ alone uh, by which we are saved. So in that sense, we're, we're Christocentric. But you know, is, is the doctrine of the incarnation the central doctrine of the Christian faith? Is the doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, is it uh, our doctrine of, of scripture? Is it election and so forth? I, I side with Cornelius Van Til here, and I don't think this will come as a surprise to any of you, that the, the Christian faith isn't one doctrine from which others radiate, but rather that it is an integrated, coherent system. It is a full-fledged worldview, and that all of the, all of the uh, doctrines of the Christian faith are interconnected to give us an organic whole that makes sense 
of all of reality and all of our lives. And, and there's a sense in which the, the gospel is the central jewel of the Christian faith, but the gospel itself only makes sense against the backdrop of the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the fall, doctrine of revelation, and so forth. So, so to take one doctrine and try and make it the central um, axis, I, I think, is an, is an error. And um, I think Van Til is good in recognizing that there is, there is a systematic nature to the Christian faith, but also there's, um, we have to be wary about taking some doctrine and, and making it the the key that unlocks everything else. I don't, I don't think that's, that's right. Now, to, to turn to the topic of Reformed analytic theology, actually, there's been some really good work uh, in Reformed analytic theology on the doctrines of Christ. Uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, Oliver Crisp and the work that he's, he's done, and, and a lot of uh, Oliver's work has been focused on Christology and in drawing resources from the Reformed tradition, doing, doing analytic Christology from a Reformed perspective. So, so the work is there. It's being done. Of course, there's, there's much more work to be done, and the, the more hands that are put to the till, the, the better. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess those would be my, my initial thoughts in response to a question like that. Just have one more question, James. Are there any other writings in the pipeline? Is there a book or multiple books that you're hoping to write in the near future that we should know about? There are a couple of things that, I, that will be coming out uh, in the next few years. You're probably aware that Crossway, having done that volume on definite atonement, um, uh, from from heaven he came and bought her that that big multi-author volume on in defense of definite atonement from uh, systematic biblical historical pastoral perspectives well crossway are going to be bringing out volumes uh, this is called the grace project uh, volumes on the other four points of calvinism if we want to use that scheme and so there's going to be one on, on the doctrine of total depravity and the fall and sin in general, one on um, unconditional election, one on perseverance of the saints, and one on uh, irresistible grace or effectual grace. Um, I've been asked to contribute one to the, uh, the one on, the, uh, on total depravity, specifically on theodicy. Uh, what, what is a reformed approach to the problem of evil and why there is evil in the world? So I, I've submitted that, and I guess that's going to be published maybe in the next year or so. Uh, I've also been asked to write uh, a contribution to the one on election, unconditional election, specifically in defense of a reformed view of the will, a compatibilist view of the will. And that's going to be very philosophical in nature, although with a with a theological motivation to it, but really uh, defending the coherence of a compatibilist understanding of free will. Because I think if you are going to affirm a doctrine of unconditional election, you really have to affirm compatibilism. I, I don't think there's any way around it say, saying that on, on a reform view, God does determine all things. Uh, this isn't a mechanistic determinism or a physicalistic determinism, but we are theological determinists. I don't think we should shy away from that, um, but that requires some philosophical defense when it comes to free will. Is theological determinism compatible with free will? I wrote on this topic in the essay that was mentioned earlier on that, in that volume, Calvinism and the Problem of Evil, so I, I've written a little on this already, but um, this will be a straightforward defense 
of a theological compatibilism that I hope will be helpful um, to people and will will be a useful contribution to to that volume, which is looking at this doctrine of unconditional election from a number of different angles. Any other questions, follow up? If not, I can land the plane. We're about at time. I'd love I'd love to see like a traditional choose your own adventure book, like just an straight up action book from you in the, in the near future. <laughs> okay, I'll put that on my to-do list. Well, on that point, James, did you ever read Supercomputer, the choose your own adventure? <laughs> Supercomputer, was that, was that one in the series? Because there were dozens of these oh, choose yeah. your own adventure books. So I read so many, I, I couldn't pin down exactly which ones I, I read. For some reason, as, as we started talking about Choose Your Own Adventure, Supercomputer popped out to me. So I wondered if that inspired your future. Yeah. That might yeah, be I'll, t- I'll tell you, here's another little uh, tidbit story that you may find amusing. So when I, when I started writing this book, um, What's Your Worldview? The working title was Choose, Choose Your Own Worldview, right? Because it was going to Choose Your Own Adventure, but it's Choose Your Own Worldview. And uh, we started looking into... Well, are there any copyright issues here? Because the Choose Your Own Adventure, it turns out that is a that is a trademarked title. Choose Your Own Adventure is actually, you know, the the legal intellectual property of the of the of the publisher or whoever it came up with. And a little bit of digging turned out that they're actually quite litigious about this. Um, a number of years ago, there was a Jeep um, a Jeep commercial with the tagline choose your adventure. I don't know if you remember that. I think they, they did it in the Super Bowl. Um, and, it, and the tagline was just choose your adventure. And they got sued. They got sued by the choose your own adventure. And um, there was a, you know, a settlement. And obviously, when I was approaching the, the, the publisher, I said to them, uh, you should probably be aware of this when we're choosing a title that, that you know, we've got to be pretty careful. And, and Crossway were, um, yeah, yeah, let's, let's not even go close to that. Let's not touch that. So we're going to call it, what's your worldview? And I thought, great, that, that trips off the tongue. That's catchy. Let's go with that. Well, that, that answers Gray's question in the chat. He asked, should we title this episode, Choose Your Own Adventure? And the no, answer I guess we, is no, no, no way. No. Absolutely no now. No, unless you have good lawyers. Unless down. we have good lawyers, right. It's so funny you mentioned coding. I was just reading an article over the weekend about, um, the effects of uh, automation and technology on in uh, in the private sector, and how um, you know with the more efficient tech, your people are losing jobs, but you can always go back to learning coding. I think is what the article was uh, talking about. So you know, hey, if you know coding, then you've got you've got some uh, uh, assured background and or uh, assured job security, no matter yeah. what happens. I try to keep my hand in. I do a little bit of coding as a as a hobby. Um, no, I'm not as up to, with latest technologies as, as I should be, but yeah, I always think to myself, you know, if, if something goes, goes wrong and, uh, you know, they decide, RTS decides it doesn't need a philosophical theologian anymore. <laughs> and, you know, maybe I can fall back on just doing some coding. I feel like, I feel like this is kind of a vocational path though. I mean, Tommy, you have computer science background. Bill Davis, who teaches for us has computer science background as well before coming here. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this is this some kind of a uh, secret railroad that we're not aware of, of uh, computer science to theology? You know, I, I do use, uh, uh, th- this is going back to when I took computer science in the 80s, uh, the flowchart model. 
the input output idea, I actually use that as, an, as a way to understand the uh, stem system in biblical Hebrew. <laughs> I do a similar thing with uh, language and exegesis. I say you can either become MCSC qualified or you can learn the actual code. I guess code metaphor is the breaks down. That's, that's too yes. metaphorical, which would not work too well with analytic theology, I think, right? We have to move away from metaphor. Yeah, yeah. You've got to ditch the metaphors. State it in, in literal terms. That's, that's my best attempt at circling back around to the topic. Hey, James, it was great to have you on this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Hey, we look forward to seeing everybody again next week. Um, until then, take care. Pretending to understand just, everything that was just said. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's not important. It's a part of my preteen, teenage years kind of coming back here and choose, choose your own adventure. Uh, computer. I mean, you mentioned Commodore 64. That's, uh, that's sort of what I'm kind of taken back to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Commodore 64, the Atari that's ST. That's crazy. Yes, that's the, crazy. The, the Amiga. Yeah.